Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. Thank you so much for joining us on the program today. As we uh, come your way Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., we stream live at those times at richarddugan.com, and we have podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, and other locations you folks are sending our uh, reposts to, as it were, and we thank you for doing that. It's greatly appreciated. We also have Zoom meetings, if you will, that we record the video and we put it up on YouTube, my channel, Richard Dugan, where you can watch these programs, which is uh, it's virtually a new I shouldn't use the word virtually, but it is a new venture for me because uh, uh, it's not something that uh, I had planned on doing from the beginning, but with the things, uh, with the way life has been unfolding, uh, it just kind of, the door kind of opened. The opportunity was there, so I took it. And here we are now with uh, all kinds of different outlets for Tell Me Your Story. We'll be giving you our guest's website shortly so you can continue um, uh, investigating and researching and, uh, and so forth. And then also encouraging you, if you uh, like the programs we're bringing you, uh, we would love your support financially. That is why we have a PayPal and Patreon account for your security as well as ours. So any amount is welcome. We'll take energetic support as well. And we also hope that you will join us in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s, uh, where you can spend some time going within, uh, getting that uh, guidance and inspiration and encouragement, as well as finding that quiet, still, quiet, uh, peaceful place that we are all looking for to just rejuvenate and re-energize and, and just relax and just take it easy. So please um, avail yourselves of uh, that great resource that we all have. And uh, with that, let's jump into our program today. We're going to be talking with novelist Dominic Martel, and he has a couple of works that are out and available. Um, Kill Chain, which is also is a novel, and then Lying, Dying, uh, let's try that one again, Lying, Crying, and then Dying. You have to lie, then you cry, and then you die. And Dominic, thank you so much for joining us on the program. Hey, thanks for having me. Now, you, you, the, you, one of these uh, brings one of your characters out of retirement, and I guess maybe we might want to start more at the beginning, uh, not so much of this particular character, but of this particular genre of work that you do uh, in terms of uh, these, these novels. Uh, a lot of people are looking to, I mean, we have a promo on the station this, this program airs on, talking about how, now that you have the time, why don't you write that great American novel? Uh, would you classify either of these works or any of the works that you have out as that great American novel? Oh, no, that's for other people to judge. Uh, I've never really tried to write the great American novel. I've just tried to write stories that interest me. Um, I have written crime novels under two different names. I also write as Sam Reeves. The Dominic Martell novels uh, were originally written. I wrote three novels under the name Dominic Martell back in the 1990s. I had started out writing as crime Reeves, uh, as Sam Reeves, sorry, uh, writing crime novels as Sam Reeves, uh, set in Chicago, where I live. Uh, and the publisher did four of those and said, well, why don't you send us something different? So I wanted to indulge a different side of myself. 
I had uh, lived in Europe for a couple of years and gotten very interested in uh, that part of the world, the Mediterranean area. I lived in Spain. I lived in France. Um, so I wrote a book set in Barcelona, Spain, a city that I, uh, where I lived for a year and that I really, uh, really loved. And I sent it to uh, Putnam, my publisher at the time, and they said, no, this is too different from what you've done before. We can't publish this. So at that point, I sent it to my British publisher, and they brought, the, brought it out over there and, uh, and eventually published uh, the first three Dominic Martel novels. They are espionage intrigue novels set in Europe, mostly in Spain. Um, and they didn't really set the world on fire in terms of sales. They gained a small following. Uh, and so I wrote three of them and then uh, went back to writing as Sam Reeves. Um, so those are the two sides of my, uh, my author persona. I write uh, American-based crime novels as Sam Reeves, mostly Chicago-based. And I write these foreign-based uh, kind of espionage intrigue books uh, as Dominic Martel. So the last Dominic Martel book uh, was published in the United States. They were eventually published in the States in 2002. And uh, again, you know, didn't really set sales records. So I went back to writing other things. And 18 years went by and uh, a guy named Adam Dunn contacted my agent. Uh, he was the founder of Dunn Books. He is himself an author, and he has his own publishing house now, Done Books. And he had liked those Dominic Martel books back in the 90s and wondered what happened to Dominic Martel. And uh, he contacted my agent and asked if I would be interested in reviving the series. And I said, sure. And he said we had a, a long talk on the phone, and what he was interested in particularly was bringing the character into the 21st century. He wanted the series updated. He wanted uh, the character aged by 20 years and brought into the 21st century because everything is different now. The world of espionage and intrigue has changed completely. Um, and so he wanted me to bring Pasquale, that's the character, uh, bring him into the 21st century and plunge him into the brave new world of cyber crime and cyber espionage and all of the geopolitical uh, things that are happening now, which, of course, completely different from uh, when Pasquale first came on the scene in the mid-90s. Well, now, I've, I've heard it said that um, we are already in the midst of World War III. It already started. And they describe World War III as just what you just were, are, are talking about for the 21st century, uh, cyber war. And the claim is, I don't know how, how accurate this is, but the claim is the United States fired the first shot. And the first shot was when we were able to infiltrate um, the Iranian uh, uh, nuclear uh, power plant or the um, uh, centrifuge site, if you will, with a virus and uh, uh, whatever it was and so forth. And so uh, I'm sorry. Stuxnet was the name of the virus. Yeah. And we knocked out their centrifuges with the Stuxnet virus. Yeah. So I saw this report uh, where the uh, Iranians, basically, whoever this gentleman was, basically says the United States started this war and we will finish it. That's coming from the Iranian government, what have you. And I'm sitting here thinking, 
in such a short period of time, we have tied virtually every aspect of our lives to the computer. Uh, you know, you, you hear this question, the, the paradoxical, paradoxical question pretty regularly. Uh, you know, where's the Internet? Where does it start and where does it end? Can you really turn it off? <clears throat> and the reality is, of course, that you can only turn off bits and pieces of it or parts of it, depending upon what your government chooses to do. I know China has a lot of restrictions and other countries as well. They have certain restrictions. You can't go to certain websites or, or do certain searches and so forth. As far as we know, you can still do pretty much anything you want here in the States, although there would be those who would argue that because of the uh, various companies like Facebook and Google and, and so forth, the social media types especially, because they've developed these algorithms that um, basically follow you. And, and, you know, everybody's all upset about the NSA and, oh, no, government cannot do that. And yet what, what have we done? We've given away our privacy to the private sector. You know, right. and I mean, when was the last time you read <laughs> when was the last time you read uh, the terms and conditions? Uh, nobody reads them. They're nobody reads them. To be impossible to wade through. Uh, yeah. And mostly what they say is something along the lines of you are voluntarily surrendering, voluntarily surrendering your privacy to us when you use this site. Uh, a very good book I read on this topic was called Future Crimes by a guy named Mark Goodman. And he says in that book, if the service you're getting is free, it means that you are the product. Mm -hmm. Is uh, very much the case with uh, the things that we do online. Uh, they're harvesting our data and selling it. We're surrendering it voluntarily in exchange for these services that most of us find, uh, you know, to be quite advantageous. Now, so it's voluntary surrender of privacy. Now, I'm going to throw sort of a <clears throat> an esoteric element into all of this. When I first got into the computers, and by the way, the it was 1994. That was the, my earliest exposure. And a gentleman I was working with was going to teach me how to not only use it, but also build them. So I started building computers. But before I reached that phase... My biggest fear was there was on this keyboard somewhere a button, a red button that basically would blow up the computer somewhere on that keyboard. And, and I would find it. And, uh, and then, of course, the, it, it's over. Well, once I got over that fear uh, and I'm still looking for the any key, you know how they say press any key. Where's the any key? I, I don't know where that is. I think it's next to the alt key. I, I can't remember. Uh, anyway, um, once I got past that fear, it was, you know, Katie bar the door. I'm on my way. And I've been, I've been having a blast ever since. But I also took this perspective. Number one, the moment I went on the Internet, I accepted that my right to privacy was over. It was done. But. It didn't matter to me because of my personal philosophy that there is a creator, a force, a God, what have you, who is, according to the ancient wisdom teachings, as I like to call them, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, knows all, sees all, etc., etc. If he knows, he, she knows, it knows, 
What difference does it make if 8 billion other people know? And besides, most of them don't care. And uh, let me throw this one-letter element in there, uh, Dominic. If the NSA is listening to this program as we're doing this on the uh, Internet, I am flattered, absolutely flattered that you would think that what I have to say, what Dominic has to say is so important that you have to be monitoring and listening. I hope you learn something. I really do. I'm not afraid of this stuff, not because I have nothing to hide, but because I already know. I gave up my privacy when I got on the computer, when I got on the Internet for the first time. Well, I'm glad you're not worried. I'm not so worried worried so much about the NSA as I am worried about criminals uh, stealing my identity and uh, running there is that credit card yeah. and, and things like that. Yeah, uh, that's why I try to do as little as possible online. Um, obviously, I, I do purchase things online and and you know register with websites. So there's a certain minimum amount, amount of that you have to do. But I have been very resistant to putting everything online. All of my, uh, all the people I pay bills to now are constantly pressuring me to move my bill payments online and yeah. you know, automatically deducted and things like that. I've been very resistant to that. I still like to write out the checks each month and mail them. Number one, it's just a way for me to keep track of expenses better than I would uh, uh, online. And number two, it keeps my data off uh, offline. I have uh, on three occasions received notices from people I've done business with online. Oh, we're sorry you got hacked and your data was exposed. Uh, the last one was just some company I bought some furnace filters from online. And, oh. you know, a few months later, you know, it doesn't, the criminals are always looking for, for easy, easy prey and they'll take your data, take your, your credit card number and, um, if you're not on the ball, you know, you'll get. Uh, yeah. And I've, I've had that happen myself twice. Uh, I actually went to a gas station two different times, didn't think anything of it. And I, I used my debit card and I paid at the pump. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I watched my account fair, pretty closely. And um, all of a sudden I see over $1,200 in charges. Mm-hmm. And I'm going, what in the world? Well, of course, immediately I contact uh, uh, my financial institution, and of course they reverse everything and and so forth, uh, and and everything was straightened out. Uh, the second time I did it, uh, I immediately saw transactions. They were small amounts to begin with, and I was able to track the uh, IP address very simply to uh, an area in Malaysia. Yeah. Well, again, I contact my financial institution, and they said, in the future, if you are going to buy gas with your debit card at a station, go inside. Because what someone has done is they put a skimmer inside the slot where you slide your card in, and they have access to your account. So now I I go inside. Hmm. Um, but That's interesting. I still pay at the pump. You know, and, and, and again, everybody has to make their own decisions in that regard, certainly. But because I follow my account so closely, I'm not so worried. But I also have a middleman in many instances. When I make payments, it's usually like, like a company like PayPal. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that they're 100% secure either. But, but I think that's one of the things that we might want to talk a little bit about because I find it interesting how – you know, you, you write these crime novels, uh, mystery and so forth. And I read a book, had to have been in my teens, and I haven't been able to find a copy of it anywhere. 
Uh, now, I listened to it on what is today called Audible. Back when I listened to it, it was on Recordings for the Blind and Talking Books for the Blind. And the book was entitled, I, I thought I had the title correct, it was called Operation Destruct. Oh, my gosh. And the guy that read it, unbelievable. And the story was great. And I loved the mind, uh, how the mind starts to get into the story and wonder where we're going next and what's really happening and so forth. And that's the thing that I'm always intrigued by. When you uh, do your stories develop from a basic premise uh, before you jump in and start maybe, I don't know what your process is in terms of making an outline or bullet points or or if the story just starts to flow and you just got to start putting it out there on on paper or on the computer, what have you. Uh, if I might ask that particular aspect, how how does a, a story go from your mind to the, the the hard copy book that I have in front of me? Well, it's a good question. And every author is uh, a little different, mm -hmm. uh, but they kind of divide into two camps. The outliners and the seat of the pants flyers. Uh, I have always been an outliner. Uh, I like to, I, to go back to the very beginning. I have always started with a character and a setting. I've always had a vision of who I wanted to write about and where this person was located and where I wanted him to go uh, in the book. Uh, and then I needed a story. Uh, the story starts with a premise. The story, I always say, start with the scam, start with the crime. If you're writing a crime novel, start with an interesting crime. Not all crimes are interesting. You know, mm -hmm. Eddie's crime isn't very interesting from a literary point of view. You can't really build much of a story around it. Start with a big, interesting crime and figure out how that crime affects or intersects with the life of your, your uh, protagonist. And then just start working out the, the ramifications. Um, I used to write out very detailed outlines. I would spend a couple months and come up with a 10 or 15 page outline. I stopped doing that because I always found that at a certain point, the internal logic of the story, once you get down to actually putting the words on paper or on the computer, the internal logic of the story takes over, it wriggles out of your grasp and goes in unforeseen directions, and it never winds up exactly as you think it's going to when you write the outline, because the details of the story take it in, a, in unforeseen directions. So my outlines now, I spend less time outlining, and my outlines are only one or two pages generally, um, to allow for that uh, phenomenon where the story uh, takes you off in directions of its own just by its internal logic. Mm -hmm. uh, so I outline less, but I do still outline. I'm one of the people that needs to know where the story is going and how it's going to come out more or less. I've never had a book come out completely differently than I planned it, <laughs> but they always come out somewhat differently. Now, I will say there's one exception to what I just said. One of my books one of the books that I wrote as Sam Reeves, a book called Mean Town Blues, I did it by the seat of the pants. I had talked to so many other writers who say, oh, no, I never outline. I just I take a starting point, a premise, and I just run with it. And I never know when I sit down every day at the computer what's going to happen. I did that for one book to see how it would go. And it actually went pretty well. I think the book came out uh, came out pretty well. But then I was unable to replicate that the next time I tried it. So I went back to outlining. Mm. 
So that is, uh, again, what I do. Um, now, the, these, uh, these new Dominic Martel books with Adam Dunn are slightly different because Adam Dunn basically gave me an assignment. He had certain things he was very interested in, the, uh, the cyber security, cyber crime, cyber war aspect he's very interested in. Uh, and the, the whole new geopolitical setting, he's very interested in. So when we talked and he told me that he wanted me to revive the series, he said, here's where I'd like you to take it. He didn't, t he didn't give me a plot. He didn't tell me what story to come up with, but he gave me some themes that he really wanted to see Pasquale deal with in Pasquale's new adventures. So I'm constrained to some extent now by what Adam Dunn envisioned for the second phase of this series. Uh, but that's fine. It's forced me to broaden my horizons and stretch myself a bit and do a, a whole lot of research, a lot of homework on some things that I didn't know much about. Uh, but I think uh, I think it's gone very well. I think uh, Kill Chain came out very well. And I have just completed a sequel to Kill Chain entitled Black Chain, sent it off to uh, to Adam, and uh, it's currently being edited. And that should come out uh, sometime in uh, 2021. Now I know that there are are certain aspects of of people of authors' uh, work that people will uh, that they're so intrigued by it that uh, the, some of the questions that pop up are from from me to start with uh, are are your books available yet in audible or uh, a recorded format to where people can listen to them. Uh, not yet. Uh, that is being worked out. Um, Kill Chain just came out in October. It's out in uh, hardcover, trade paper, and ebook form, and the audio rights are being uh, negotiated. And I have to tell you that being, a, um, I'm going to say, an aficionado of audio books, not audible, but audio books, from a very early age, and we're talking uh, probably my early teens, if not earlier than that. Uh, I love when uh, the narrators get so into the book, whatever the genre is, that uh, let's say it is a story uh, with multiple characters and they start doing the voices. Mm -hmm. I also produce audiobooks. I did a children's book not long ago. The author flew down to Santa Barbara. We were in studio for two two-hour sessions, finished it up. It was a, not a, a huge book. And I have to tell you that when I went back and listened to it myself, uh, I was in awe and, and very humbly in awe. It's like, wow, that sounds so cool. Sounds like grandma reading to the kids. And mm -hmm. we threw in some sound effects as well as some musical interludes and so forth and so on. So I, I absolutely love it when the narrator obviously is given the, the, the free range to do that. And there are some great narrators out there. There have been over the years. There are some actors that, that do a great job. And then there are some authors uh, who, who do a fantastic job. Some authors who have a great voice, but they say, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I, get somebody else to do that. Yeah. And um, so I just – it's like as I'm listening to these books – my, the movie is playing out in my head. Uh, I listened to Dan Brown's uh, Da Vinci Code, and the movie was playing out in my head, right? When the movie came out, and I didn't cast any specific actors, nor the look thereof, other than what was described in the book, the movie was like, what did you guys plug an auxiliary out from the video of my head 
to put it up on the big screen, it was incredible and it was wonderful. What about in your head when you are writing? I mean, you say you outline first, you have a, a direction that you want to go. But as you are, let's say, writing it, and I'm curious, is it on the computer? Do you do it on a typewriter? Do you do it longhand? And is the movie playing out in Dominic Martel's head and imagination as he is writing? Uh, <clears throat> I write on the computer, and I don't see a movie, no. Um, I've never really thought in cinematic terms. Um, I'm a reader. I love to read. Mm -hmm. um, to go back to your point about audiobooks, I'm not a fan of audiobooks because I can read a lot faster than people can talk. Mm -hmm. Okay. My wife loves audiobooks. She listens to audiobooks constantly. Um, she has favorite narrators and, and uh, she loves audiobooks. Um, I don't, particularly. Um, and, um, so I, I'm a big written word guy. Mm -hmm. Um, so I write on the computer. I see people in my head, but I never associate them. I don't cast a movie when I'm writing. Okay. When people ask me, oh, who would you cast as Pasquale or who would you cast as such and such a character? I'm always at a bit of a loss. I don't know. I never think about, I have a picture of, I have a picture of Pasquale in my head. I have a picture of, uh, all my characters in my head, but it's a little vague, mm -hmm. more of a type than a, a really distinct image. Every once in a while, I will sort of fix, if, if I'm having trouble nailing a character down, I will fix on a real person as an image. Oh yeah, okay, let's make this character look like this guy that I, you know, see uh, on the bus all the time or whatever, because he's, for some reason, he looks distinctive and he looks like Okay, let's nail the character to that particular person uh, just as a way of me visualizing the character so I can describe him or her in the book, that kind of thing. But I don't really ever, I certainly never cast a movie or think in, in terms of the movie when I'm writing. Um, I'm much more concerned with just the story, the prose. I pay a lot of attention to the prose, the style, things like that. I'm I'm curious. Do you consider yourself an artist and writer? Because, in a manner of speaking, you are you are painting pictures for people when they read your books. Uh, yeah, I'd like to think I'm an artist. I don't have a particularly exalted perception uh, <laughs> of that. There's high art. There's low art. There's popular arts. There's uh, you know I I try to write with fairly high artistic standards. I write genre fiction. I don't mm -hmm. write literary fiction, mm -hmm. but I try to I, I try to write to a high literary standard. I think genre fiction can meet high literary standards. Uh, there are there are books that bust out of uh, the genre, transcend genres, uh, can qualify as literature. So I try to take my craft seriously and maintain high literary standards. So, but I you know I don't have a I'm not particularly, I don't, I try not to get a big head about it. I'm writing right. popular fiction to entertain people. That's mm -hmm. really what I'm aiming at. So am I an artist? Sure. You know, so were the Beatles. So were, uh, you know, uh, any, anybody that reaches an audience and entertains that audience is an artist. Mm. Do, um, when you are, when you are, um, 
obviously, let's say, because uh, I know that this is usually the, a lot of the times this is the case with people who are very, very prolific. They'll they'll have a contract with a publishing company. Then you okay, you got to put out a book a year or uh, eighteen months or what have you. Uh, and I know that there is a, such a thing as writer's block and so forth. Okay. Have you ever had a situation where you needed to write a book, not so much that there was writer's block per se, or maybe let's put it in the reverse, that there was this story that you just you couldn't get rid of. You know, it's like you're in the middle of another book. You're in, in the middle of writing another story. But there's this other thing, almost like uh, maybe one of the characters in the book you're writing, and all of a sudden you see this spin-off, so to speak. Uh, have you ever had to uh, deal with uh, that kind of divergence uh, of, of, of ideas and storylines, or do you somehow maybe incorporate that into the, that particular work? How, how, have you ever had that happen? Um, <clears throat> well, I've certainly had, yeah, I wrote a okay. Well, there's a couple of different questions there, I think. Let me see if I can take okay. them. Uh, <laughs> um, first of all, let me answer the question. Do I get writer's block? Um, I like I, I, I flatter myself uh, by saying I never get writer's block, but I sometimes get plotter's block. Okay. <laughs> I find if, I, if I have the story well in mind, I'm always able to sit down every day and write. Mm -hmm. I do get to a point sometimes where I really don't know what should happen next. Okay. okay, what happens now? Gosh, I don't know. And then I may have to walk around for a couple of days going, what should happen? I, gosh, what should happen? What if this happens? And then I got to think out the, you have to think through the implications every time you make a plot uh, turn. So I, I get stuck on the plot uh, sometimes for a couple of days. But, you know, once I, once I know where I want the story to go, uh, I never get blocked at the level of just, you know, sitting down at the computer and not having the words come out. You can okay. only write something. Um, so I, I do get, I, so yeah. Okay. If plotter's block qualifies as writer's block, I do occasionally get it, uh, yeah. you know, at that level, at the level of plot. Now your question about characters, uh, taking over. Yes. Characters. I, I liken it to, cause I really think it's the same phenomenon. I liken it to children with imaginary playmates. Hmm. I never really had imaginary playmates that I recall uh, as a child, but one of my brothers had an imaginary playmate that he drove us crazy with for years. Uh, uh, his imaginary play was, playmate was Chickadee, and he always said, oh, Chickadee and I are doing this, and Chickadee says this, and we go, oh, come on, no, stop, this is crazy. <laughs> well, I, I found... I would get characters in my head and start thinking about fantasizing about these characters. Oh, here's an interesting guy. Now, what does he do in this situation? I, I would start thinking about these characters. And that's where my characters in the books come from. Mm. What if there were a guy like this? You know, in these circumstances, I, uh, it often starts with a setting or a situation. And, yeah. and then suddenly a person will pop into my head. Well, what if there were a person in this particular situation? And that person reacted this way and so forth and so on. So I have these imaginary playmates that I think about sometimes for months or a couple of years before I put them into a book. Um, mm. And uh, so that's where my that's where my main characters come from. That's where my central characters come from. That's where Pasquale came from. 
Do you, um, do you yeah? Do you ever have uh, a, a list of characters uh, that just kind of pop up? You don't really have a story for them yet, but here's this character who is kind of this way or that way or the other. You know, you kind of have a profile of the character, but they're yes. not right for this particular story. Do you have like a maybe a I don't know a notebook or something like that, I, or a folder, a file, uh, where you sort of keep track of these characters? Uh, you know what? I may use this particular character in another story somewhere down the road. It's kind of like. Uh, uh, <laughs> for me, I used to build models, and you always had to be careful that if you wound up with extra parts afterwards, you were in trouble. But in the case of writing, it's okay to have extra parts left over because you could use them next time. Use them in another book, sure. Uh, I don't really have a roster in that sense. Um, I'll get I'll get ideas for yeah. characters. I'll just kind of file them away in my head, and they'll pop up again at some point. Uh, the most, uh, the best example of a kind of spinoff that I can think of is I wrote a book in, uh, oh, about 1998, 99, around in there. I wrote it as a standalone uh, uh, novel. It was about a, a former Chicago policeman who had to leave the force and he went to Mexico for a few years and then he comes back to Chicago and he gets involved in a, you know, gets, gets involved with, uh, you know, a, Plot involving uh, the Chicago outfit, the mob. Mm -hmm. So that book was called Dooley's Back. It's about a guy named Frank Dooley, and uh, he's back in Chicago now after eight years in Mexico. So the title was Dooley's Back. In that book, I gave Frank Dooley a family, which is the first time I'd ever given a character a, a family. I'd sort of always written about alienated loners, and, you know, not referred to their families very much. I gave Frank Dooley a family because people have families, cops have families. Police work runs in families. In in that book, Dooley's Back, I gave Frank Dooley a father and a brother who were both Chicago cops also. Subsequent to that book, as I say, I intended it as a standalone. Subsequent to that book, I got a, an idea for a cop novel set back in the late 60s in Chicago, pretty much a historical novel, because some very interesting things were going on in Chicago, politics and police and uh, organized crime intrigue at that time. And I thought, I'll put, uh, I'll make Frank Dooley's father the protagonist of this book. So I then wrote a prequel to Dooley's Back entitled Homicide 69, featuring Frank Dooley's father, Mike, as the protagonist. And Frank Dooley appears as a 15-year-old boy in that book. Mm. So that's, and then I subsequently wrote another book featuring uh, Frank's brother, Kevin. So I've now written three books about the three cop members of that family. Uh, and I originally conceived it as just a novel about Frank, but I gave him a family and then the family started to interest me and I wrote two more books about the family. You know, it fascinates me when I, I, I watch the news and I see different things happening. <clears throat> the first time this phrase was ever used uh, as, as I became aware of current events, you know, uh, was during the Iran-Contra hearings. And the comments that were made where I was working at the time uh, were, you know, Hollywood couldn't write this stuff. And I take a look at our current situation in the world, in this country in particular, uh, politically as well as governmentally, and I'm going, Hollywood couldn't write this stuff. This is just too freaking bizarre, you know? It is uh, amazing. You know, I, I'm sitting here thinking that, you know, you, you uh, and, and so it, it leads me to this particular question. Uh, are there other genres 
other subjects, uh, fiction or otherwise, that you would like to write about um, that you would probably have to come up with a third non de plume uh, because uh, your publisher, you said earlier, you submitted a manuscript. This isn't you. No, no, no. Go back and give me something else. And it's like th- this is uh, the, the dilemma that even musicians and art, you know, uh, musical bands and, and soloists have. And uh, uh, it's um, back in the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s when I used to listen to music a lot. I was so frustrated because they'd play the same song by the same artist over and over and over again. It's like, what else have they done? And then when they diverge from that particular style, the fans, they just, they're in uproar. How dare you? I want you to sound like you did in the last album and so on and so forth. But um, with all of that laid down, what about other subjects, other genres? Are there any others or are crime and mystery novels really the thing that intrigue you and, and push you forward? Um, I grew up reading mysteries and crime fiction. Uh, my father, who was a theoretical physicist, uh, his uh, favorite uh, recreational reading was, was mystery and crime, and, and I grew up reading that stuff. Um, I wanted to be a writer from a young age, but I started out thinking I would be, you know, uh, you know, a great literary novelist in college, which is where we acquire most of our pretensions. Uh, I acquired the pretension that I was going to be a great literary novelist. So I started writing a literary novel, wrote about six versions of the first chapter and got no farther than that. And then I didn't write anything for a couple of years. And then at, at one point, uh, been out of college a couple of years and uh, it just a light bulb went on over my head one day while I was reading a crime novel. You know, this is the stuff I've always most liked reading and it's what I should be writing. Mm-hmm. And I sat down and started plotting out uh, my first crime novel. So it's a genre that I'm very comfortable with. Um, it has occurred to me that to write other types of uh, books, but at this point, I've developed a career as a crime novelist. It allows me, the form, the genre allows me to do the things I want to do literarily. As I said, I think you can write good literature within the bounds of genre fiction. Nothing says you have to write a, uh, an undistinguished book just because it's genre fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the crime genre because it has built-in drama. Uh, I, the, uh, you know, if, if you're writing literary fiction, the, 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 your task is to, to bring the drama out of everyday life in many ways. Mm-hmm. Although a lot of great literary fiction do, uh, is about war or crime or other things that have built-in drama. Um, but I like crime fiction as a genre because it has built-in drama. Yeah. Uh, I- and you can write about how that dramatic situation affects your characters and that's what interests me one of the things that intrigues me about stories that i have read over the years is um and i'm i'm more of the science fiction sci-fi kind of guy love star trek and so forth i just finished a few months back um, the audible version though i have a hard copy of stranger in a strange land Mm -hmm. uh finally finished the book 
Loved the story, hated the ending, enough said about that. But the thing that I love about some of these books, like uh, the Dune trilogies or Stranger in a Strange Land or even even the Star Trek series. And, of course, there are a lot of people who have written stories based upon that genre as well, is the detailed intricacies of society. Not just the economic, maybe not just the crime and and punishment thing, um, but when they incorporate more of the esoteric aspects of life. Uh, Dune goes into the religious aspects, okay, Uh, to some degree. And, of course, I like to use the word philosophy, okay? Uh, And I love when they weave that part of existence, whether it be human or humanoid or what have you, into the story. So I'm curious as to... Uh, though I would suppose there isn't a lot of room in a in a crime novel in a mystery novel uh, for some of those more esoteric aspects, but I'm curious as to whether or not that's something that you have incorporated uh, in some fashion into some of these characters and and even the storyline itself. That uh, um, I mean, let's uh, for example, there's a movie that's coming out on HBO Max uh, having to do with Heaven's Gate. Now, mm-hmm. if that hadn't happened, that would make a great sci-fi mystery uh, story because mm-hmm. it's got a, its own philosophy and it's got these people involved and it deals with high fi- you know, money and all these kinds of things as well as control. Uh, and that, to me, is, is fascinating. It's a shame it was a true story as well. <laughs> but what about, uh, what about your incorporating of those kinds of elements? Is that something that... Uh, you've done or have you thought about it or is that something you've thought about and said, no, that, that really doesn't belong. Uh, it's something, it's not something that particularly interests me. There is a little subgenre in the crime field of, you know, paranormal, uh, mm-hmm. uh, crime. There's sci-fi crime as well. There are all kinds of subgenres. I'm a rationalist. Okay. I like, um, I like uh, the real world. I think good crime fiction is firmly rooted in the real world. Um, I enjoy the type of crime novel that you uh, come across occasionally where there appears to be a supernatural element, but it is given a rational explanation in the end. Uh, I think those are, those are great. There, there's a great classic old mystery novel that I love called The Red Right Hand by a guy named Joel Townsley Rogers. He's written in the late 40s. It's the only well-known book the guy ever wrote. And it's a classic, and it is a, it's supremely creepy. And it contains, <laughs> you know, the, 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 the narrator is told in the first person, and he thinks he's going insane because uh, he never saw something that people insist he must have seen because it happened right in front of him. So it gets very convoluted. And you think, there must be some kind of creepy supernatural element, but it's all given a rational explanation in the end. That's the type of supernatural crime novel I like, where the supernatural is explained rationally in the end. I've never done anything like that, um, uh, but I enjoy that type of writing. Along I, same- I'm, a, I'm a rationalist. I'm a realist. I like realistic, mm-hmm. naturalistic fiction rooted in the real world. So you probably haven't dealt uh, a lot with uh, the psychological or the psyche of 
the the let's say the protagonist that that they're driven more uh, by something that has happened to them in the past that's flipped some switch that's caused them to go as you and I might view it has has gone, caused them to go berserk and do the things that they're doing that they're trying that that the the law enforcement is trying to catch them. Uh, uh, yeah, no, I've never gotten inside the head of a killer or anything like yeah. well. I have briefly. Yeah. I've written from the point of view of uh, of, uh, of the killer in one or two places. Yeah. Mostly, I write from the point of view of the protagonist. Mm -hmm. um, I do deal, I think, with psychology, the psychology of the, of the individual. Mm -hmm. um, now, you, but, you you talk about the fact that you like you you know you you like Chicago. Uh, and and that particular area, and of course, the history of Chicago is is rich with um, incredible uh, stories, crime, and mystery, and so forth. Uh, yeah. The three main cities I can think of off the top of my head that would fall into that category are, of course, Chicago, Detroit, and New York City. Um, those seem to be three, and maybe I'm missing some there, somewhere along the way. L.A. just doesn't fall into that category. It's got its, it's, got its style or, or what have you of that, but it's not quite the same as the, the Midwest or the Eastern um, aspects. Maybe Boston you could throw in there, too, uh, especially with the Irish influence. I mean, that, that's I – st <laughs> I still remember uh, shortly after 9-11, a Bostonian uh, officer basically uh, saying to the terrorists, you can kiss my white Irish ass. And I just I had to laugh. I understood exactly what he meant, but I just had to laugh when he said that, you know, uh, because it just sh shows the bluster, if you will. And that's not to say he wasn't serious and he was not not mad. But I, I sometimes the phrases that come out are there are there sometimes catchphrases that you find a character just fits with and and it's like uh, that's sort of their their slogan or their moniker. Um, I, I, the one I'm thinking of right now, of course, is a science fiction television series back in the 60s called Lost in Space. And uh, uh, Dr. Smith and his catchphrase was, oh, the pain, the pain, oh, the pain. Uh, what about your characters? Do you? Do, <laughs> I know this is a side about, thing, but. I don't know about catchphrases. I pay a lot of attention to dialogue. I think dialogue in a book should be interesting mm -hmm. and it should always have a point. Uh, I, uh, it should be realistic, naturalistic, um, and I think it's gotten more so over the years. If you go back and look at old crime novels, sometimes the dialogue is very stilted and you go, people don't really talk that way. Elmore Leonard is often credited with sort of bringing dialogue uh, into a more naturalistic vein, and people say, oh, his dialogue is so realistic. Uh, but if you go and study the dialogue in an Elmore Leonard book, you see it is, yes, of course, realistic in the sense that this is the way people really talk. But it's very carefully crafted. If you listen to people in the real world talking, there's a lot of wasted verbiage, mm. uh, a lot of hemming and hawing and repetition and mm. self-interruption and all this kind of thing. The dialogue in an Elmore Leonard book sounds very natural to the ear, but it's it's always to the point and concise and always drives the story and takes the story precisely where it needs to go. It's always interesting and entertaining. A lot of real world conversation isn't. Mm 
So uh, the dialogue has to be, it has to sound natural and realistic, but it also has to be pretty polished. So I, I pay a lot of attention to dialogue and the way my characters talk. Mm. You know, have to make it interesting. Yeah. And, uh, keep people reading just for the dialogue. Yeah. I don't want to have you give anything away. I don't want to have any spoiler alerts here by any means. But most stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes a story has a beginning, a middle, and uh, not exactly an end, leaving the door open for sequels or a continuation. Mm-hmm. It bugs the daylights out of me on television where you're watching this program. You know it's a series of episodes, one right after the other, that's going to continue the story. Mm-hmm. But then, for whatever reason, a particular episode will come to an end, and they will put on the screen, to be continued. Right. Really? Of course it's going to be continued. This is a serial kind of, <laughs> of program. Are any of your books tied together, any of your stories tied together in that fashion, or are they beginning, middle, and end we're done with this one. We're now moving on to the next story. Um, I All of my books that have been written in series, and I've written two different series as Sam Reeves and uh, this one series is Dominic Martell. I think books in a series should be standalones in the sense of having a, a beginning, middle, and end and leaving the reader with resolution at the end. Mm-hmm. So what, my, what makes the books... Uh, a series for me is common characters, particularly the common protagonist. However, it's funny you should bring this up just now because I have just committed this sin that you're talking about because Uh-oh. the sequel, <laughs> Kill Chain is a standalone. Everything's wrapped up at the end. Black Chain, which I've just sent to the publisher, leaves, it, 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 everything's resolved at the end. Um, Nothing is left hanging in the sense that the reader doesn't know what happened or whatever. But there is a uh, there is one element that is still out there that will be used as the central element in the in the sequel, ah. which I'm currently plotting. So things get wrapped up in the sense that you know all of the mysteries get resolved and so forth. But this central element uh, that we hang the plot on in Black Chain is still out there in the wild available to be used uh, to hang the plot of the sequel on. So in that sense, it's to be continued. But I agree with you. It's annoying not to have all the loose ends tied up and, yeah. and all the, the dangers and mysteries resolved at the end of a book. And I always do that in a, in a series book. Now, now, your books are not that thick. I mean, I'm looking at these two here that we're talking about, Kill Chain as well as Lie, Cry, Di- Lying, Crying, Dying. Uh, by yep. Dominic Martel, and uh, these might take me uh, a couple of days, a couple of days to read each, um, whereas sometimes stories, they just go on and on. I mean, Stranger in a Strange Land, uh, I, I was intrigued by it, so I was able to continue on through it, because the version I have, the hard copy, uh, is is probably about this thick, and it's still paperback, it's right? It's just, just a long story. And the other thing that annoys me about uh, these serial programs, for example, as opposed to movies, is that they go on and on. And it's like, bring the walking dead to an end. Kill it, please. I mean, how much longer can you drag this scenario out or whatever the... The, this, whatever the story is, whatever the name of the program is, it's like, I love some of the British 
miniseries. We watched one that was only four episodes long, and I applauded at the end, not because I didn't like the story, but thank God you brought it to an end in a fairly timely manner. I can take six or eight or ten episodes as long as it comes to a conclusion. But some of these programs, it's like lost. It should have died in the second or third, maybe the fourth season. And, and it was like, is there a problem? Do you guys not know how to end this? Is that what it is? You, get, you can't figure out how to do it? You know, because you're going to lose it. It'll get canceled rather than you guys getting to end it. And it'll be unresolved for everyone. Uh, Dallas was kind of that way, too. And <laughs> yeah, it was all a dream. You bet. He was in the shower for five seasons, six seasons. <laughs> it's, it's all a dream. Um, is that ever a problem for you? I mean, Anna, I, I know that you plot it out. I know that you outline it. But have you ever be... found yourself in a situation where I need to continue this? Or, you know what? This has gone on too long. On two occasions, a story has grown past uh, the point that I intended. Um, my book, Homicide 69, that I mentioned before uh, about a Chicago police detective taking on the mob in 1969, came out to a 500-page book. It's about 150,000 words, which is a big, thick book. I never intended that. But once I did the research and plotted it out and started writing, I found I just I had to write this story and to get everything once I got everything into the story, um, it was 150,000 words long. Uh, it was published at that length, 500 page book, and it didn't do very well. And I think one reason it didn't do very well was people don't like to read a mystery that long. They want a mystery to be about 70 to 90,000 words. That's uh that's probably the, the, the normal length for a, a mystery or crime novel. And it allows them, as you say, to get through it in two or three days. Uh, so that happened with Homicide 69, and I think it kind of tanked the book. Uh, and it happened again recently. I, the, the, the last book that I wrote is Sam Reeves, which my agent is still trying to sell, hasn't <laughs> succeeded in selling it yet came out again to about 150,000 words. When I, I plotted the thing out, I thought, okay, here's how the story's gonna go. And I like the story and I think the story is coherent. I don't think there was too much waste in it. But once I, once I wrote the thing out, it just turned out to be a really big story. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you conceive a bigger story than other times. Some stories are bigger. Yeah. So I, I, I wrote this book, 150,000 words. I sent it to my agent. He said, oh, man, this is way too long. I'll never be able to sell a book at this length. Mm. you got to cut some of it. So I, I cut it. And, and some of the cuts were painful. I cut out a couple subplots and, you know, and it was painful. I felt like I wasn't cutting fat. I was, I was, you know, cutting close to the bone. But I got it down to 120,000 words, which is still a fairly thick book. And I sent it back to my agent, along with a list of books that had uh, of 120,000 word lengths that have done very well. And I said, if these if these books could be sold, you could sell this one at 120,000 words. <laughs> well, he's still working on it. So I agree that that's a problem, particularly in genre fiction. And I plead guilty to having the story just you know, to having plotted too big a story. Um, and uh, I hope that, you know, some some big, they talk about the big fat beach reads, some 500 page books <laughs> do sell as popular fiction. 
<laughs> you know, and uh, a lot of people are willing to buy that big 500 page novel and uh, uh, make it their beach book or whatever. So I'm hopeful that there's a market for uh, for that book. I think my agent will eventually be able to sell it. I think it's pretty good. But yeah, it just turned out to be a big story once I had conceived the, the four main characters and how their lives intersect. Yeah. Well, I will tell you that uh, the biggest difference in something like that is going to be the author. If the author can keep the reader intrigued throughout, it could be uh, 500,000 words. Uh, okay. Now, I haven't read War and Peace. I don't know how many words are in it. I haven't read it. I think the title kind of says it all, so I think I'm good. <laughs> um, and there was another book I was just thinking of uh, also that uh, – um, uh, I, I can't think of it now, but it just seems to me that that's that's the key right there more than anything else is if you are the author that can hold the reader's attention from one page to the next. Exactly. It doesn't matter it's how long it is. Voice. Yeah, it's all about the voice. Does the voice draw you in? Does the author's voice carry you along as yeah. you say from page to page? Is it is it a chore to sit down and read this thing, or do you look forward to sitting yeah. down and reading this thing? A book that has a great voice, man, you can't wait to sit down and read it, and you're sorry when it's over. Absolutely. A matter of fact, um, back before I had my lens implant, uh, I was using uh, a magnifying glass to read. Well, I had this book. It was a paperback, and it intrigued me because of the cover. It was this rocket that was taking off, and it was called The Prometheus Project having to do with the U.S. and the Russians and missiles and this and that and the other thing. And the story was really intriguing. So I was up late at night sitting in my parents' living room when I was still living at home, and I was holding the book with one hand, trying to keep the paper, and it was a thick book, keep, trying to keep the book open and still trying to read the, the, the text. And, and, and it, was a, it was a painful read from that point only, that yeah. it was it, just the, con, the contortioning that I had to do. Because I loved reading and I didn't want to stop. And that said, an, that, to me, that says an awful lot about, uh, uh, you know, um, an author who has got it. And I think, I think I'm correct. I think Frank Herbert wrote that one, Prometheus Project. But uh, that, to me, this is, is truly fascinating to get into the, to the mind, if you will, uh, of, of the author. I, I, before we wrap up, I wanted to ask you, you said you're a realist. You deal with the real world. But I'm curious as to uh, your personal philosophy just as a human being that you grew up in. I mean, you said that you, you and your father, uh, you know, you both, re you know, read mystery novels and so on and so forth. But I'm curious about uh, the philosophy that you were raised in, uh, in terms of your own personal beliefs and, and, and leanings, if you will. Uh, well, I was raised in a devout Baptist household. My father was unusual in that he was a world-class theoretical physicist, a Rhodes Scholar with a doctorate in theoretical physics from Oxford, but also a uh, believing Christian. He'd been raised a Southern Baptist in, in Oklahoma. And uh, so I was raised in that tradition, uh, church-going, pious family. Um, and then as I, you know, began to question things, uh, you know, in adolescence and so forth, uh, my father and I would discuss philosophy. My father told me once that uh, for him, religious belief was an escape from the determinism that uh, he felt uh, 
physics uh, might uh, drive uh, some people to. Um, so I was, but I was also raised to uh, question things. And at this point, I would call myself an agnostic. Mm-hmm. I'm no longer a, a devout uh, Christian. Um, but I, you know, certainly have uh, sympathy for people with sincere uh, religious beliefs. Um, uh, but yeah, I am a, I am a, a realist. I would call myself at this point. Um, uh, I'm very interested uh, still in uh, theoretical physics and what is the nature of reality and uh, where did this all come from? Uh, and uh with my uh, with my believing brothers, I had two believing brothers and another agnostic brother. There are four of us, and two of us uh, two of us believe and two of us don't. We have lively debates uh, in person and via email on all these questions. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm very interested in these things. Yeah. Have you incorporated those kinds of things from that philosophy as you were raised into any of your works, or do they not fit because of what we've already talked about? I wrote one character in one of my books, which has not been published. My agent is, was never able to sell this book. I hope, uh, I hope it will see the light of day at some point. I wrote one character who was a devout uh, Christian, and that plays a part. She's when I get inside her head in the book. She's often, you know, uh, this is a part of her character. I think that's tricky. I think it puts some people off. Uh, and you have to be careful to treat it respectfully and not caricature it. Um, but it is a reality for many people. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting to put that into a character, uh, and, uh, and have, uh, a character in a secular novel, because I certainly don't write, you know, I'm I'm a secular author. I don't Mm -hmm. write religious fiction, Mm -hmm. but to have a character with religious belief, in a secular novel, I thought was an interesting challenge and task for an author. Mm. Uh, so, but that's the only character I've ever done yeah. with. Uh, well, no, that's not true. One of the characters is in the um, in one of in the Pascual books is a, an old Jesuit priest in Barcelona. Uh-huh. I have him. I have him in a couple of philosophical uh, discussions with uh, with Pascual. But he's not. I don't really get inside his head. I I portray a couple of the philosophical discussions that he has with Pasquale. I have to say that uh, in spite of of my philosophy, my personal leanings, as as it were, and I consider myself a metaphysician, uh, I also will also take the position uh, of an agnostic. Yeah, I've read a lot of stuff. I've talked with a lot of people. I've had certain experiences, but by the same token. I don't know. And I learned that I learned from Larry King, who I used to listen to back in the 80s when I was working for a local station in Phoenix. Uh, I think agnosticism is the most honest position to take, uh, even if you are a believer in other, you know, top tier philosophies. OK, that to say I don't know is genuinely honest. Well, that's the way I feel, obviously. Yeah, but, uh, absolutely. But it's an ongoing debate. Yeah, family, absolutely. As well as in the world at large. Yeah. One other question I'm going to put to you before we wrap up. 
You talked about, uh, you know, we talked about a lot of different things, especially in terms of uh, how you feel uh, as you're writing and what happens and whether or not your publicist can get this book sold or that book sold. At what point do you feel a sense of accomplishment, satisfaction, completion uh, along those lines? At what point in the writing process does does that come along? And again, I, I, I put this to you uh, and asking it from the standpoint as a humble author, uh, you know, uh, Dominic Martel, as a humble author, where does your satisfaction come at what point in the in the writing or creating, if you will? Oh, when I get the thing done, <laughs> which, which uh, is kind of an asymptotic process in many cases. In other words, you get close to the end, but you never reach the end. Uh, my wife makes fun of me for this. I'll, you know, I'll write the final chapter or, or I'll, I'll, I'll get close to the end of a book. And I'll think, okay, I can finish this thing off tonight. And then, and then I'll think, wait a minute, but wait, no, that doesn't quite work. It doesn't quite tie up all the loose ends. And I'll rethink it, and I'll write a version. And I'll go downstairs and I'll say to my wife, I finished the book, and she goes, oh, congratulations. And then the next day, I'll, I'll look at it, and I'll go, no, man, it doesn't really quite work. So my wife knows it takes me half a dozen attempts to finish a book before I'm really satisfied with it. But once that book is done, that's a great feeling of satisfaction. And obviously once it's accepted for publication and you know, there, there are different stages, seeing it in print, seeing galleys for the first time is a wonderful experience. Oh man, it's the first time you get a look at what a printed book is going to look like. Mm. That's a great feeling. Seeing it on the shelves in the store uh, is, a, is a great experience. Uh, so there are different stages of, of satisfaction. But yeah, basically, when I get the thing done and I'm satisfied with it, when I have a draft that I'm ready to send off to the publisher, uh, that's when I feel, okay, I did something. I did something good. Yeah. I accomplished something with my life. I hear you. I hear you. Have you ever incorporated, uh, just uh, to follow up on this, you know, you said your father was a theoretical physicist. Have you ever incorporated uh, those kinds of things or high tech aspects to it, uh, to, to a, a particular story? Because to me, that that would just uh, I think that would blow some people away and in, in a good way uh, to start to mull over some of these aspects of, you know, what is real and what is not and and so forth. I never have. Um, crime novels are, are generally, or my crime novels anyway, are, are generally concerned with, you know, fairly mundane things like how can I get away with this heist? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, who killed that guy? Uh, you know, what are the ballistic, you know, very practical matters like that. Um, the books I'm writing now uh, about Pasquale, uh, the repentant ex-terrorist uh, uh, who can't escape his past, uh, now getting involved with, you know, uh, cryptocurrency and, and cyber warfare and all of that. Uh, those are the most technical, uh, I'm venturing into the most technical fields now that I ever have. Um, I've never, theoretical physics, I don't know, that's something I've, I've never, never gone near that in my fiction. Uh, maybe I will someday, but, uh, but I don't. Yeah, uh, I, I was watching um, this. This I, I 
I openly admit I love cartoons, okay? Grew up with Warner Brothers, all right? So I'm watching this episode of Family Guy. They're talking about OCD bank robbers who go into a bank, and they're about to hold the place up, and they're telling the, the, the gal behind the thing, okay, here's what we want you to do. Take the bills out. Make sure all the heads are going in the same direction and stack them. You know, no funny business. Then they start looking around the bank and, and noticing things are in disorder. So the next thing you know, they're having everybody help to clean the bank before they rob it. Uh, and I'm curious about humor in your, in your novels. Uh, to me, that also helps people to remember the story, does it not? Sure. I try to put humor in my books. I mean, uh, I have a sense of humor. I like to think. Uh, I'd like. To, I'd like to think that there's some humor in my books, um, some irony. Uh, mm-hmm. So we're, I, I'm certainly not writing comic novels. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, everybody thinks they're funny. I think I'm funny. I can make people laugh, but I, I'm not consciously trying to write humor. Uh, I, I, I put some humor. The occasional, you know, the occasional. Uh, witty remark or ironic observation here and there always right. helps a book. But I, I don't feel I'm writing humor. No, no, no. I, and I, I'm not implying that at all. I just was curious as to uh, how you do that. And you've explained that quite well. Dominic Martel, I want to thank you so much for uh, sharing with us not only your insights into uh, writing as well as your own, uh, but also the uh, latest works that are available, Lying, Crying, Dying, which is a novel, and Kill Chain, and of course, uh, soon, or we hope, soon to be released, Black Chain, as you've already mentioned to us. Where do, and of course, I know these books are available on Amazon and all of the other standard outlets and so forth, maybe even in your local bookstore, assuming you have one. What's that? Your local independent bookstore. I encourage people to patronize those. Absolutely. We have one here. Actually, I think we have a couple here uh, in the Santa Barbara area that we encourage people to go to. Chaucer's as well as uh, uh, Tecalote. Out, I think it's out in uh, Montecito, uh, California. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if they don't have it, they can get it. Uh, but uh, what about a website where people can find out more about you and the other books that you have written? Okay. Um the Dominic Martel website is currently under reconstruction. I had a website, and then, uh, as I say, those books were published 20 years ago, and then uh, nothing happened. So the website was in drastic need of being updated. It is currently being updated and under construction. In the meantime, I have a Dominic Martel Facebook page, and I encourage people to go to Dominic Martel on Facebook. Uh, Martel with two L's at the end, like the cognac. So look for Dominic, look for Dominic Martel on Facebook. I, I post a lot on on my Facebook page of things I'm interested in and information about the books and uh, things like that. You know that wouldn't be a bad idea. Pick up one of your books, pour yourself a Martel cognac, sit back and relax and and read a great mystery. I want to thank you. Loves cognac. I'm squadron some of cognac. Oh, wonderful. Uh, I have three final questions for you. Um, you may have sort of touched upon them throughout the interview, but I'd like to ask them directly. Before I do that, I want to remind you, the listener and the viewer, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, that these programs are on uh, this fine radio station uh, at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. on Sundays, Monday mornings at 1 a.m., streaming live at those times. The podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, and a lot of other locations that you folks are re- 
posting to. We encourage you to go to uh, uh, Dominic's web page or actually his Facebook page, Dominic Martel, again with two L's. And uh, we also hope that if you can support the work that we are doing here on a financial level, we have a PayPal account for your security as well as ours. Speaking of security and uh, the Internet, uh, Dominic. And um, then also participate in the decade of perfect vision, the 2020s. And take a little time and uh, go within. uh, And uh, who knows, maybe... uh, Maybe you've got the writing bug. You just haven't tapped into the right ideas just yet. But once you do, please take advantage and go for it. I mean, what have you got to lose? Put it out there. Even if nothing more, you get the idea out of your head and on paper, and then you can work on developing it from there. So uh, uh, we encourage you to do that as well. Well, let's see. The first of three questions for my guest today, who once again is the author of a couple of books that we've been talking about today, Lying, Crying, Dying, and Kill Chain. Uh, The first of the three is, or are, I was going to ask you about grammar and syntax as well, but we'll get into that another time. The first is, who is Dominic Martel? Uh, Dominic Martel is a uh, writer who lives in Chicago and writes crime novels under two different names. Uh, I'm a native Midwesterner. Uh, I grew up in little towns in Indiana and Illinois, Um, moved to Chicago after college and have lived there for my entire adult life when not traveling. I lived in Spain for a year. I lived in France for a year. Um, I uh, traveled widely in Latin America and the Middle East. I am by trade a translator. I was a teacher for many years, then I developed a second career as a translator. I can do five foreign languages. I can do French, Spanish, Arabic, German, and Catalan. Uh, so I make uh, my, my day job is I'm a freelance translator. Um, and uh, well, I don't know, that's about it. That's who I am. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? Oh, gosh, I've kind of given up on the idea of getting rich from being a writer. Uh, that's probably not going to happen, although I, you know, I've made a, a respectable amount of money over the years. I'd like to leave a reputation. I'd like to be respected as somebody who wrote a few good books. I'll be happy with that. And finally, what is your life's purpose? My life's purpose, man. <laughs> Um, I don't know, be respected, be respected as a good citizen, good father, good neighbor, good, uh, you know, good husband, uh, just be remembered as somebody that, uh, if not improved the world, at least didn't leave it worse off by his presence. <laughs> just be a good citizen. That's, uh, that's what I'd say everybody's purpose in life should be. And well, beyond that, you know, whatever, whatever, uh, whatever floats your boat. Well, Dominic Martel, again, thank you so much for giving us so much time here on the program. It's, it's been a pleasure not only to meet you, to get to know you, and to share you with others uh, in this format and this forum. And uh, we hope that uh, uh, the next time you come out with another uh, another novel, we can get together again and talk about uh, some other aspects of of your writing career as well as what intrigues me is, of course, is this uh, this aspect of being a translator. Uh, I speak. I'm going to say two languages, although one of them 
uh, has escaped me to some degree, and that is uh, the ability to write in computer code. Back when DOS was big, uh, and the first time I put a line of code across the screen, I marveled for two reasons. One was because I could understand what the code meant. Number two was, did I write that? You're kidding. Really? It was amazing to me that I was able to figure that out. Uh, Now I'm working on HTML, which is a whole other thing. But uh, to be able to maybe not speak them, but to translate them, to understand these other languages. uh, you know, my hat's off to you <laughs> uh, because uh, th- not everybody can do that. And I have to tell you that it seems to me that a lot is lost in translation from, say, original language to whatever other language you want to write it to. And maybe someday we can talk about that. That's a whole other conversation. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for giving me the chance to talk. I enjoyed it. You bet. And I thank you for listening and watching. Tell me your story, New Paradigms for a New World. We are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to lol.